podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. G'day, I'm James. Welcome to the Australian Opinion on Formula One here at the Lakeside Drive F1 podcast. In this episode, I chat with Australian cyclist Tiffany Cromwell. I'm joined by a fellow South Australian and, well, completely brilliant athlete in every right, Tiffany Cromwell. Tiffany, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. It is so great to talk. Uh, Very, very excited indeed about this. What I'd love to do, though, is go right back to the very beginning. Let's go back to South Australia. Young Tiffany, what was it about sport in your family? Because there seems to be this story for many, many Australian athletes. Was it a big thing? Yeah, definitely. You know, we were or are a very sporty family. Um, it wasn't cycling, but, you know, we grew up in the Adelaide Hills and you're always outside. You go to Blair National Park, run around. And yeah, actually it was basketball. So my brother played, I played, my dad coached, um, my eldest brother at times played. But I think we just also did any sport, you know, like after school and at school and all these sorts of things. And yeah, just a very active family. What was it about basketball that really dragged all of your family along? Was it the parental influence or was everyone just a big fan of it? Honestly, I don't really know. I'm guessing probably, yeah, the parental influence because obviously with dad coaching, um, he was always yeah involved with the local club and, yeah, naturally. Then my brother started and I was two years younger. So then I obviously would come to the trainings, have a ball in my hand. And when I was old enough, I started in the under-10s and, yeah, it was just – Yeah, something that we did, I guess. (laughs) This is the Saturday sport you're doing, kids. I'm going here, so you're coming too. Uh, Was there anything else sport-wise that you found your sort of interest at all? It piqued your interest, I should say? Yeah, there was a lot. Like, I guess before basketball, actually, I did ballet like most young girls. And yeah, then I went through that tomboy phase and yeah, decided, okay, ballet wasn't for me and then to basketball. But always lots of things. I did a lot of athletics, like cross-country running um, at school, for sure. Um, I did school sport aerobics. I don't know if you know that sport, Mm. but yeah, it's like kind of dancing mixed with aerobics. I did that one year at school as well and some triathlon in there, Um, a tiny bit in taekwondo (laughs) for like a term, but yeah, I I tried lots of things. Goodness, yes. The all-rounder sport, let's try everything we possibly can. Uh, Was the triathlon the first time you found yourself on a bike? On a proper bike, yes. Like obviously... Growing up, we would ride bikes around the street and stuff like that. But, yeah, never was I using, you know, like any kind of road bike or mountain bike or that kind of thing. Was it was it your strongest leg in triathlon or did you find yourself a stronger swimmer or runner? Honestly, yeah, it was running. Um, swimming, I was always <laughs> terrible. That was my weakest link. Like I'd have the lifeguards next to me thinking there in case I was to drown, but <laughs> I would survive that. And then the bike was, yeah. <laughs> I was pretty slow in swim. And then, yeah, the bike was okay, but I was always the strongest in running. Keeping the South Australian Surf Lifesaving Club and everyone else on their toes. I like it. I very much like it. So, okay, the the bike in the triathlon uh, wasn't the strongest leg, but clearly became important at some point in your youth. What when when did that happen? Yeah, so it was quite young actually. Um just when I started high school, and it was I've always said like cycling found me. It was through the Sassy Talent ID. Um yeah, they came, the school did the fitness tests and then in sports class and they sent our results to Sassy. Sassy kind of went through it all. Then they said, okay, these ones look good. They invited us down to Sassy to do it again just to verify it and make sure they're correct. And then from there, yeah, they saw my results. And I think because I was good in the shuttle run, uh, they said, hey, come to the local velodrome out at Jeps Cross and try cycling. So it's like, here's a track bike. There's no brakes. There's bankings. I can't remember the exact degree, but, you know, if you've ever been to a velodrome, it's quite daunting the first time you see it. And, yeah, just go right around and don't go too slow on the corners or else you slide down. So (laughs) that was the introduction. (laughs) And, um, yeah, then they put me in the lab for a VO2 max test. And from there then I joined a group of other kids in the exact same way. Like they all came through through this talent ID program and, yeah, we got given a coach and, like, the basics and then it started. That seems very Australian. Don't go slow in the corners or you'll slide down. <laughs> just just exactly. deal with it. <laughs> Speed. That's all you yeah. need to know. We'll, yeah. we'll figure the rest out later. So, okay, so you've yeah. come through through this talent ID program, um, which is a brilliant Australian initiative, at least it was 
um, back then. I'm not sure if that still happens. Hopefully it still does. But what does what was that point then in transitioning into a junior career? Because I imagine that you then started doing training sessions, like obviously uh, your father was doing in terms of basketball and brothers and everything else, and like you do at swimming and everything else. How did, how did that all start? And how does training for being on a bike differ from what the rest of your family was doing in terms of timings? Actually, from the training side, it wasn't too different because it was still going to a training session, you know, a couple of times a week. It just, you know, the commuting back and forth, like I was very fortunate to always have very supportive family, like whatever I want to do, they would take me. And yeah, so at the start, I still was playing basketball. So I was managing both sports. So some days of the week, I'd be doing basketball training. Other days we go down to the velodrome. And yeah, also fortunate in terms of with the Talent ID program is like we just turn up and then they had all the coaching that, well, they had one coach and we'd do all the different drills and it started at the track because it was a controlled environment and that was really good. But then after a couple of months, we start on the road and this is how far we're going back because the very first sessions I remember it was when Sunday trading didn't exist in South Australia. So you could go on a car park, there'd be no cars and mm. just practicing riding around, you know, stopping unclipping, clipping back in, like just very basic things. And yeah, so, you know, my parents would just take me to my training sessions. And I remember, I think it was about two times a week during the week and then a Sunday morning session on the road as well. And sometimes we teed up with some of the other kids in the program who live nearby and they would do the run for, you know, a few of us and yeah, you know, swap and change. But yeah, it kind of, you know, as a kid, it was easy. It was like, you just go, there was the events as well, like turn up there, ride your bike and go home again and, yeah, didn't take it too seriously. It was more just for fun. So what was, what was the point then that it started transitioning into being a little more serious? Was there a moment where you thought, actually, I'm pretty good at this, maybe I should have a crack properly? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, for sure. I think so obviously I started in under 15s and there it was more just on a state level. Tried that. We had like the national championships. Um, I think they're in Queensland. And then, yeah, once I got to under 19 level, that's when you have the first chance to make an Australian team. And already in the under 17s, I'd showed some promise and I was like, oh, maybe I can do this. I was competitive at a national level. I got, I think, a silver medal in the road race at the national championships and wow. got invited to a, um, like a development camp, an Oceania development camp that year. So then, yeah, I think it was under 19 where I was like, okay, I need to travel more around the country. Like my mum would drive me across, you know, to Canberra or to Victoria to get more competition and, yeah, and then from there naturally it's just I never really said, okay, today is a day I'm just going all in. It was just everything kind of progressed at a good level, like doors would open. I had the opportunity. I got the results. I made the Australian team as a junior on both years and I always had these goals and then, you know, that in the early years is both track and road, so balancing the two and then after juniors you decide, okay, which direction. And for me, because I was quite a small rider, like road was naturally the the pathway to take because I wasn't as strong on the track. Was it difficult being based in South Australia or Adelaide and trying to compete? Because I imagine it's probably very East Coast dominated like most things are when it comes to inverted commas national sport. Yes and no. Like I would say we had very good support network. Like the Talent ID program in Sassy has always been one of the best. The downside is, yeah, competition level. If you wanted the high competition, you need to go east. Like the strongest scales were coming from Victoria and New South Wales at the time and the national championships at that time were always in Queensland. Did it ever feel like you've made the decision, all right, you're doing a national thing. As you said, you're starting to compete against some stronger athletes. Was there any uh, sort of doubt, doubtful moments or that the proverbial hill maybe seemed too much to climb and then you wanted to jump off? In the early years, no. Um, I just enjoyed it, I think, like I was never one of these ones who always dominated and won everything. Like, cause also I developed quite late. So there were some girls there who were definitely had gone through puberty well before me and were much stronger. And I was like always second to them, but I was always there. Mm. And also growing up, I didn't get the chance to travel just due to my parents' work. And so then suddenly I was like, start traveling. You know, I took my first trip overseas the first time with the junior worlds. And I think I was just always competitive. I was never you know, like way off the back or getting dropped immediately. It was more when I got to like the elite ranks and, you know, there you start having the up and down years and that's when you had like, you know, 2011, for example, was a bad year and that was one of the years where I was like, okay, is this really for me when you've committed to an overseas life and 
spending eight months of the year away from Australia, away from your friends and your family and, you know, trying to create this new support network abroad. It's, you know, there were definitely moments, but each time I always found, let's say, the light at the end of the tunnel to like say, all right, I still love this. You know, you'd have the lows of the lows and then you kind of breathe, you go do something else and come back to and say, no, I still love this and I still love the challenge and trying to be the best rider I can be. Tell me back to your first international win where you proved to yourself that you could do it. I'm sure you kept reflecting back on that when it got tough. Yeah, it was pretty special. I think depends who you're trying to collect. If it was the US one, that was, yeah, on the national circuit. It was, yeah, it was just one of those days where I was just floating. Like I remember it was, well, there was one the week before as Criterion, but I won't count that. The one at Sea Otter, it was, yeah, just I was with the US team then. I was like super young compared to my teammates because also in the US they typically get into the cycling a bit older because they do the college and everything else. So, you know, I was this young, like, uh, what's the word, bit of attitude, like 19-year-old <laughs> just won't have fun and just, yeah, I was living in Boulder and Boulder has altitude and I come mm. down to California where it's sea level and it's just a day when you're floating. I was just riding, attacking and just going away and just, yeah, I remember like, yeah, finishing and I was solo and I lapped half the field and, yeah, yeah. just like finally feeling you know, the emotions you get when you cross the line first, it's, yeah, it's adrenaline. It's it's like a drug, like, you know, there's nothing you can compare to that feeling. And you know, that was like, all right, I can do this. I can, I can actually win races because with cycling and sport in general, it takes confidence, you know. You can be, do the best preparation, be the best rider in the world, but if you don't believe in yourself and your abilities, you know, there'll be always something holding you back. And I think when you get that one win, normally then it flows as well and you, consistently okay I can make that attack I can try to push my competitors and yeah put the pressure on yeah it it comes to a mental side is there much of a support network when it comes to teams because I know in terms of a lot of professional sports you're obviously uh, competing against everyone all the time the world of cycling slightly different in that respect in terms of there's a team environment as well as your own self Uh, you're talking about the US team there and yes being probably the young upstart from Australia, big old g'day mate, how are you going, I'm faster than you, get out of the way kind of vibe, I'm sure. Um, but what what's it like then entering a team for the first time? Is that a support network or is it? do you have to earn their trust? No, I would say from the start, normally it's a very good support network. Also depends on the team that you get, but I've been fortunate to always be with good teams and ones with very good support because the thing is to be successful as a team, you need a team that trusts each other, believes in each other supports you when you're down and those sorts of things. And definitely from when I started racing to where we are now, the team aspect has grown in the early years. It was still, okay, you would have a team, but you could also win a bike race as an individual versus these days. If you don't have a good team, a good plan, like you can't do anything, like the level's too high. And so, yeah, they bring you in. Normally you'll have the more experienced riders that they'll kind of be the ones who really create the atmosphere, also like kind of take you under their wing to help you and, you know, to help you grow, help you learn. And so, yeah, I've been fortunate to have that. But even like away from the international team, so like because we have the trade team and then for um, championship eventually with the Australian team. But these days too we have a very good Australian network as well. Like we have a WhatsApp group with all the world tour female riders who are racing where we can like message each other, reach out if you have any issues or any questions. And so I think that's really good. And that's one thing that has really developed in the last few years because I didn't have that in the early years. Like, you know, you knew the other Aussie riders and at the races you'd say, hey, how are you? But, um, yeah, we didn't have like that really greater support network like through, you know, your WhatsApp or technology and all these sorts of things. Was there market difference between junior career and senior career in that aspect? 100%. You know, like when I was a junior, there wasn't technology. (laughs) Like I remember first time going abroad and the second year it was like, oh, my God, Skype, what is this thing? (laughs) You know, nowadays it's like, you know, that's old news. Like mobile phones, like I still remember when I went to Italy the very first year, it was like choose the internet. We went to the local library. It was dial-up. And it's 2005, so I know it's a while, but reality it's still the 2000s. And we go to like the local shop, buy a, a phone card and to the, the phone box to call home, like a dialing card. And so definitely to connect back home was much harder. And I think there, you know, to get homesick was much easier. Mm. So then, of course, you don't naturally have the ease communications with like the National Federation, with the other riders. It's very much 
you see people in person and that's the way to connect. Did it become more of a competition to get into those teams going into the senior career? As in, did you find it a little easier in the same way that, you know, you got picked up by that talent ID in South Australia, that junior kind of just kept flowing? Did you have to become a a business person very quickly to try and figure it out? A little bit, yes. Because also back then, like, Firstly, A, very little money in the sport. So mm. you're talking like you're negotiating a few hundred euro here or there, like the difference between contracts. But there also wasn't managers. So we as riders did a lot ourselves. So, yeah, it was one using the experience of the older riders. So reaching out to them and saying, hey, what do you think of this? And really trusting people. Um, yeah, because obviously when you're a junior, you just go. But part of it is also getting recognised. Back then we had a really good national program that also competed overseas. So there was a full Australian Institute of Sport Training Centre in Europe. So I was fortunate to be part of that program to actually be racing in Europe, having teams see me race. And then from there it's about you putting yourself out there, racing strong, like not just sitting in the group, getting noticed. And then from there you start to get like teams saying, hey, do you want to come ride with us? But then, of course, it's daunting to have that conversation. It's like, what do you ask for? What do you need? Like, what should I be asking for? Whereas, obviously, as the sport's evolved, it's now getting way more professional. Like, there's obviously a lot more money in the sport. There's more managers in the sport. So these days we have people who can do that job for us. But it still takes you as a rider to put yourself out there and get the results, get noticed to get your foot in the door to a professional team. Of course, there's an Australian team as well, which you were part of for a little while. Did that feel more like coming home and and did you bring some more confidence every time you got on the bike because of that factor or was it just, it's another team, they're getting me where I need to go and let's get after it? Yeah, I think because it was the Green Edge team when that first started, there was something nice about that in terms of it did feel very Aussie. So you did have that home comfort around you. We had a few international riders in that team, but what was great was they were there to help us develop, Mm. to help us, you know, take it to the next step. And I was fortunate to ride with, you know, for example, Judithant, who at her time, she was German and, you know, had won the biggest races. She was world champion, but she was also in her last year of her career. So she wanted to help us succeed. And, you know, having people like that as mentors, that was really nice. But then still, you know, having the Aussie slang, like Aussie banter off the bike just to, you know, (laughs) people understood you, obviously going to other teams. <laughs> if I throw out some Aussie banter, like they're like, huh, what are you saying? Like, <laughs> yeah, I had to learn to change some of my wording, like <laughs> with more international teams. But, yeah, I think there is something special of racing with an Australian team. Even like, you know, when we go to the national team, it's the same feeling. It's like, yeah, you know, you feel, yeah, proud and excited and, you know, a bit of home when you go put on the green and gold. I imagine the probably the, the first big moment that you felt that was at the Commonwealth Games in 2014. I can only imagine being an athlete and growing up and saying, this is what I want to do to represent the country, to obviously be champion and, and whatnot. How was that opening? So, I mean, Commonwealth Games, if you don't know, is, is a smaller version of the Olympic Games for Commonwealth countries. Um, and the Olympics is coming. We'll get to that. But how did it feel in terms of representing a country for the first time on the com got game stage. Yeah, you know, it was very exciting. As you say, like it's always, it's these goals we always work towards. It's like you have your world championship goals, get that team selection. Commonwealth Games is always like every four years. That's like the kind of get there to then get to the Olympic team type thing. And, you know, finally getting the selection into the team and being there. It was in Glasgow, like with the green and gold in the village atmosphere. Like it was special. And, you know, I think you always have a sense of pride when you pull on your national colours and being on the world stage and trying to chase the gold medals. It's, yeah, it's again, like for me, those have always been very proud moments. And then in the following games, you were road captain. What is that process like? And how does that feel from a leadership point of view? It's definitely has its own pressures. Of course, as a road captain, you're not the leader that's trying to go for the gold medal. It's more, you're the one in charge of the tactics making the calls when we have to make decisions because in championship events like that, we don't have race radios versus like in many of the world tour races, you have that. So you have a car who can also give you communications and help you with the decision-making versus at a Commonwealth Games. It's like you have that pressure. Like if we need to change something or make a decision, that's up to me to make that decision. So when we're chasing gold and we know we have somebody like Chloe Hosking, who Mm. was an outright favourite on that course, it's like, okay, I don't want to mess up the calls. I need to make the right decisions at the right times. But I kind of enjoy it because, you know, it shows a level of respect that you have 
<clears throat> from the team and from the riders that they trust you in the, the decisions you can make. And, yeah, so I think it's something I've had to take time to grow into. Like mm. I wasn't naturally a good road captain. Like tactically, yes, but, yeah, off the bike and being that kind of leader is something that, you know, didn't come naturally to me. But over years it's definitely got easier. Yeah, I imagine it's it's hard when you're not taught leadership specifically. You're taught just to go fast at a bike and think about many things. Yes, tactics is one thing, but then getting off the bike and speaking to the plethora, I'm sure, of Australian media who must have been enormous. Had you had much luck with being okay in front of the media at that point or was that really the moment where you really had to step up and, and lead that? No, I think up until then, you know, with every year <clears throat> it gets a bit more and, you know, of course, when you have some success as well, then you have more interviews. So by then I was pretty used to have dealing with interviews and those sorts of things. So, but for sure in the early years, like the first few interviews you do, if you go back and like, if you listen to yourself, you're like, okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I had a bit to learn, like even just, you know, how you conduct yourself, not in a bad way, but you know, saying the right things or yeah, just staying on focus and not just being a young kid basically. But yeah, I think that's, again, it's something you learn and grow into. Not everybody is comfortable with it, some more than others, but it's part of the job and, yeah, we get a bit of media training along the way so you kind of get an idea how to do it but still with cameras it's always harder than like press or something like this. Like, yeah, paper, print media. Yes. Well, podcasting is always supposed to be the most relaxing, allegedly. <laughs> Let's talk about the Olympics though because this is this is the event uh, we're a very similar age and uh, I am sure you remember the 2000 Olympics in Sydney probably as well as I do. Um, I think I even have one of those plush toys of the kookaburra version of one of the mascots still oh, anyway yeah. somewhere. But that was such a big deal back then. I can only imagine when you finally got into the stadium for yourself to be in there, it must have been next level compared to Com Games. 100%. Like, you know, that's the Olympics had always been the dream. It's something I'd always talked about, like I want to make the Olympic team. I think for any athlete in an Olympic sport, it's the pinnacle. It's what we're all striving to get to. You know, it's the world's biggest stage for sport of international competition. And the whole Talent ID program, that was always the goal, but it was Beijing. So that was perhaps a few Olympics too early, but, you know, <laughs> The first one I truly had a chance was London. Mm. Didn't quite make it. Same thing, Rio. It was like right in the mix year before, cracked under pressure, didn't make the team. Mm. Finally, like Tokyo, which was the one I was probably least expected mm. to make because the years before I was kind of there but sent up and down years, but I wasn't necessarily in the right mix for it. And then it was just things clicked in that year. Having the delay after COVID was a blessing in disguise and next thing I found myself as part of the team and, yeah, to finally – get that call to say yes you're in the team like we want you there and as a road captain as a support rider like it was special and to be there on the ground racing like okay it was a unique olympics in terms of the atmosphere the crowds it wasn't quite the same but we were lucky with road cycling that being on public roads we had really good atmosphere but yeah racing there in the green and gold like for sure, it's my, one of my proudest moments. Was there a specific moment through the Olympic Games where it was a bit of a pinch me moment, be it the opening or closing ceremony or any point where you looked around whilst you were in beautiful Japan thinking, bloody hell, I've actually made it? Um, it was on the start line, like finally being there because we never actually got to go to any of the opening or the closing of when our sport was. But, yeah, it was finally pinning the numbers on, like being on that start line and rolling out. I think that was that was that goosebumps moment, like, okay, we're here, we're doing this. All right, let's do this, you know. <laughs> it's a big day and, yeah, that was the very special moment. You were the highest finisher, weren't you, in terms of the Australians for that event too? That uh, I mean, obviously not probably the podium in terms of what you wanted, but that must have been a very proud moment for you too, considering you just said, oh, I really probably wasn't in the mix for it. Yeah, you know, I definitely surprised myself there and, okay, from a team performance we didn't achieve the goal that we wanted. And, you know, my job was actually to be the early worker and the support, but this is where cycling is quite unique or, you know, things can happen and it's like you need to adapt depending on what your your result is or your role is. Like, you know, if your key riders aren't there and then you need to step in. So I think, you know, being able to actually be competitive on that course because it was quite a climb-heavy course and sometimes I'm good, sometimes not good on the climbs and to actually still be there, like coming into the final lap, it was, yeah, like, okay, the result is nothing special, but okay, to be the highest finisher, 
you know, it was nice that I could actually step up, you know, and still be there when needed when, you know, for the other girls, they weren't necessarily having the best day on the bike. So, yeah, you know, it, it was just nice that I could, for me personally, it was like one of the strongest race I'd had in recent years. So that I was proud about that I could actually be on the start line and race really strongly in such an important event. Well, it seems like that momentum has continued, but what I want to talk about now is gravel racing because it's all I see really in your Instagram feed uh, and with Valtteri's too. I want to know what the, what is the addiction with this and how does it, in layman's terms, how is it different from pure road or even mountain bike racing? Yeah, so gravel is kind of a new discipline that's popped up in more globally in the last few years, but it's been in the US probably the last 10 years or so. It's kind of, I, I always describe it as a cowboy sport. Like it's a one that people kind of started to get away from the governance of like mm. road racing and the politics and some of the other disciplines. And I think it started in the US for a number of reasons. It was people just want something different. They want to be off the roads because sometimes in the US the roads are a bit dangerous with the cars. They want to explore different places. And the thing is like to take a mountain bike, certain trails you need a pretty good skill set. So for people that's a bit daunting. And obviously the road bike, it's not always the best on gravel. And it did start as that. People started taking road bikes a bit off-road on tracks that were like manageable to ride on a road bike. And then industry saw, hey, let's try create a bike, which is just for this. So then gravel bikes start coming and more people were purchasing them and just enjoying just exploring. I think that's what it started. And then next thing, people like, hey, let's get our buddies together, throw an event, just do something fun on the back roads, in the forests, and drink beer at the end. <laughs> and then, you know, then be, that, that's really what gravel is about. You know, it's, it's a really fun community event. And then, yes, you race hard on the start line or you just do it just to have a day out on the bike. But then off the bike, it's it's just a very fun environment. And this is where it's very different to road. Like road is very team. It's very, yeah, not corporate, but, you know, it's it's a very elite sport. Like you don't have amateurs racing with pros on the same start line. It's, yeah, versus with gravel, that's what it is. It's like it's about something for everybody. You have, yeah, a 70-year-old and a 20-year-old. You have men and women all in the start line, all in the same course as it's a bit more like an Ironman concept in that way. And, yeah, it's just, as I say, we just enjoy it because it is a little less stressful than, like, the road scene. And it's something that, yeah, my team proposed that I do because also for the sponsors it's a area that they're looking to grow. They see, okay, for us it's important because of the amount of participation doing gravel events. And I was like, sure, why not? I'm always open to something different and yeah, so like gravel can be anything. It can be a single trail. It can be a big dirt road. It can be a forest. You know, it's just anything that's off road is gravel, yeah. <laughs> basically. And not a sh- no shortage of uh, trails here in Australia. And listener, if you've not seen Tiffany's uh, posts on Instagram at the moment, there's lots of beautiful lights in the heavens. And no, you weren't in Tasmania, uh, in Finland. <laughs> uh, and you've got a, a Finnish event coming up. So not only have you, you've done all of this stuff and you've started this, this thing, um, we'll come to how you spent your Christmas in just a moment too, but what's it like then being involved in terms of managing the setup of this event? Yeah. So we have our own gravel race, Good Finland Gravel coming up on June 10th here in Lutti, which is Valtteri's hometown. Um, it's definitely very different being on the other side, but how this came about was, so there's this great event in Colorado called Steamboat Gravel or SBT Gravel. And the organizers there kind of saw one interview of Valtteri saying, Hey, I'd love to do maybe my own event in Finland. And of course they're like, Hmm, (laughs) interesting. So then they reached out and said, Hey, we'd love to do it with you. So we are fortunate to have such a great group to work with already because the event that they've created is one of the premier ones in the US. So they knew what they were doing. They knew all the details. But, you know, with an event, there's so many working parts. But so we've been heavily involved in terms of like we have regular meetings, coming up with the ideas, but they're definitely doing a lot of the hard work on the ground. But we're lucky that we have great support from the Lutti town, you know, to put on the event. So that is huge. But, yeah, we're excited for it. It's, yeah, lots lots of working parts, lots of promoting to try to get people to come, but we believe it's going to be a great event. And we're doing it on the same style of a US where we really want to be an experience. So it's not just about the racing or enjoying the course. It's also like we're going to have 
some cool expos. We're going to do some fun pre-events like scavenger hunts or ride outs and really just get people to enjoy the, the community and what's, you know, the Finnish nature and teach them about sauna and jumping in lakes and everything else. Maybe we should hire a shuttle flight from here in Australia direct. <laughs> it can't happen, but we can make it work together. That sounds yeah, definitely. That sounds bloody fantastic, honestly. And I love the idea of gravel racing in terms of throwing out all the rules and mucking in and being about community, but also going hard, drinking some beer at the end. What an outstanding concept. Love it. Uh, well, I wish you all the best yeah. for that. Uh, not sure we'll be able to make it, but we'll see. Well, who knows? The Lakeside Drive plane. Maybe yeah. we'll, we'll talk yeah, to the government. Yeah, there's some pretty good flights by the Middle East, direct to Helsinki. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But all yes, right. there's a long way away. <laughs> Oh, well, look, if you could do it, and if, if all of the F1 drivers can do it considering the distance they had to get here uh, for Melbourne and then fly out again, you can do it too, listener, and um, you can have a holiday around Finland too afterwards, I'm sure. Let's talk about the midsummer. Let's talk about Formula <laughs> 1 now, if we can. Were you a, a fan of the sport before all of this? Were, is there any sort of memories deep back in your early days of the Adelaide Grand Prix? Yeah, I've always been a fan of the sport. Um I always vaguely remember the Adelaide Grand Prix, but I was pretty young, so mm. I don't remember it entirely. Like I remember that the cars were so loud that you can hear it up the valley into the hills. But, yeah, I I remember younger, like, you know, be on TV sometimes on a Sunday and be like, oh, maybe I just watched this. And you know, I also kind of, yeah, enjoyed like the V8 supercars and things like that. So I've always had a small touch on on the sport, but, you know, not heavily, heavily, massively a fan, let's say, but appreciate it. And then I think... When it moved to Monaco, you know, there we had quite a few of the guys who come training with us. So then naturally you start following it a bit more because you're like, hey, it's my friend, so I'm going to see what they're doing. And I was friends with some of their partners. So I think, yeah, it's, it's something I've definitely followed. And, you know, it's an interesting sport, especially because there's so many crossovers, like mm. from their sport to, you know, cycling and things like this. What was the uh, what was the first event that you went to in, in this era of watching the sport? would have been Monaco Grand Prix, just naturally because I was living there. So it was like 2014 was the very first right. time I actually saw saw it live. So before that, no, I'd never been to, to an F1 event. And in terms of watching it in Monaco versus then being involved with the team and, you know, being able to get the VIP access with with the driver entry and all that kind of other stuff, what what was the di- the key differences apart from obviously you're not having to queue up, but what was the differences you noticed <laughs> between watching it as a fan and then watching it from the garage? just different obviously you're way more connected to it watching from the garage naturally if your partner's a driver you're fully focused on them you get to see like all the details the radio comms and this kind of thing like how the mechanics work like that's quite interesting but yeah you're just very focused on well for me it's military but before like obviously as a fan it was more just there to enjoy the atmosphere to kind of see see the cars and then you know it was I didn't really have one clear favorite it was more just the friends who I've been training with, okay, I'm like going to support them because like, all right, I've trained with them. Right, let's go, go team, go. And it's just more just enjoying the atmosphere. And, you know, Monaco is quite unique in terms of like the racing on the streets isn't always the most exciting, but the whole atmosphere there is something very unique. Like, you know, because you've got the boats, you've got people on terraces, you've got people in grandstands. It's quite, it's a very, as they say, glitz and glam event. But, you know, I was fortunate to get some nice invites just because obviously I lived there and I had some friends, you know, there. So I got to experience it in a cool way. But, yeah, it's yeah, just different. I guess you're just not as focused on, you know, one team or one driver when you're there just kind of enjoying the event. Friend of the show, Richard Saxby, who uh, is ex-Mercedes, was telling me a great story that uh, every time you would end up coming to the factory, uh, a lot of the engineers and mechanics and admin staff, basically everyone was so bloody excited because they got to hang out with you and talk about cycling. They're like, who are Lewis and Valtteri? Don't care. See them every day. Tiffany's coming. Excellent. This is very exciting. Did you feel uh, really part of the family when it when it came to visiting the, the factory? Yeah, 100%. Like I only ever visited the factory, I think, once or twice. But, you know, on a race weekend, there are so many people around and, Obviously, when I met Valtteri and started coming to the race, it was during the COVID time. So you really got to meet the team. You know, there wasn't all the people around and all the guests. So you got to know everybody quite well. And yeah, it did. by the end, it felt really like family. And even now, also Alfa Romeo, it's the same. Like they do really bring you in. And it's nice, like, because as you say, there are so many people who just love the sport of cycling just to ride or 
because, you know, particularly engineers, it's still, <clears throat> it's still aerodynamics. It's still, you know, a lot of details. And you often see like people who've worked in F1 also come across to work in bike companies because uh-huh. there are so many crossovers when it comes to particularly aerodynamics and things like that. But yeah, it's, it's enjoyable, you know, when people share the same passion and before bikes were banned on the track during track walk time. Like I would sometimes do some laps and, you know, there's so many people out riding laps as well. And yeah, it's fun. You know, if you can share your passion with with others, it's it's always nice. Yeah. That seemed very bizarre when they stopped that. Come on guys, bring it back. We need, we need that back. That (laughs) that would be a good thing for everyone. Um, There's also a really brilliant Australian group of people who work and travel in Formula One in all teams, including in Alfa Romeo, which is very exciting for you in this, in a similar way, to your experience in cycling, do you see that as, as an Aussie from the outside, how that sort of happens and how important that is for those people to have a family away from not only their team, but being away from their family for 23 races a year? Yeah, hundred percent. You know, it's like all industries where you have so much time abroad, like almost your team becomes your family. It's same me in cycling, like my team, I spend more time with them than I do with a lot of people close to me and it's the same in F1. I just say everybody kind of knows each other. People have their, their people that they see and yeah, Aussies, I think, always stick together. It's like, hey, you're an Aussie. Hey, how you going? Like you feel like your besties already. <laughs> um, so I think that's nice and, yeah, it is a travelling circus and, of course, certain weekends you're just in and out. The staff, definitely they have to come a bit earlier and leave a bit later. Like we're fortunate we come in quite late and leave quite early, like from the driver's side and I'm just – support team (laughs) but um yeah on like the flyaways where maybe you have back-to-back races you're spending more time you know in the location then yeah off the track you get together like we have dinner with the whole team or you know you maybe go out and see other people and yeah I think it's like I said if you're in that industry you'll kind of get it get on and just enjoy you know the free time as well together. Now you do a lot of cycling with Valtteri it's uh all over social media it's brilliant to watch but was it a big part of his performance program before you arrived on the scene or has it become bigger as a result of you being able to train for your own events as well as help him out? Yeah, it's definitely become more than what it used to be. Like he said before he met me, he did always ride, just not that much. He was more a runner, but Mm. also naturally running is quite hard on your body. So Mm. cycling is a nice transition because it's obviously a lot. But yeah, since he's met me, he's He's really got into it. Like there's some days where I think he enjoys cycling more than I do, especially when it's my off season. And he's like, oh, I want to go ride my bike. I'm like, I just want to sit on the couch right now. So, but, but it's nice that, yeah, that he has so much passion and like his strength is, you know, really good these days. Like sometimes in the, when we first met, like, okay, I'm doing my harder rides. Yeah. He does a couple of hours and then that's too much. But now like his general endurance is really good and yeah, he's always been very punchy he just has to be smart around his races like not to do too much because that can then affect his reactions and his speed and that kind of thing when getting in the car but yeah it, it's a fun passion that we can both do together and it helps his performance and obviously for me it's nice to have company when I'm training. I, uh, I had a quick chat to him when he was here in Melbourne and asked him how that helped change him his sort of mental state and he said he really enjoys in, in that way. Have you noticed a big shift in him being able to have that stress release and then for you too, do you, do you enjoy it more as a result with doing it with him? I definitely enjoy doing it with him for sure. Um, as I say, it's just something we can do together. Like we do fun adventures. Of course, sometimes I get a little more stressed if I'm getting ready for a major race or something. Being like, oh, I need to do X, Y, and Z. But he's pretty good on letting me just do what I have to do and he joins when it fits. But, yeah, I've seen – just in general, his whole mentality shift has been much more relaxed these days. I think since changing to Alpha, he's really kind of enjoyed the different environment, the opportunities of really being a leader there and kind of helping the team grow. Like, sure, his goals have changed, you know, to what he was doing before to now. But, yeah, I can understand and relate, like, the whole cycling is that mental stress relief because it's the same for me. Like, some days I just go ride my bike if I don't have to do efforts or anything else. And it is, it's that way to get away. If you have things on your mind, just, just to think, just to switch off, just, it is like really, really great for that. You know, it's, yeah. As I say, when you just need to get away from anything, just go ride your bike and enjoy the fresh air. And of course, you don't do that when it's a quiet area. If you're doing that in a major city, it's a different story, but yeah, it, it, it's a great stress relief tool. I'd like to talk about 
uh, Christmas. Uh, you and Valtteri were here for for Christmas, and I, I'm curious to know what it was like. I mean, Valtteri was here for 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 Grand Prix before, uh, obviously spending lots of time here. But what's it like showing someone from such a beautiful country in its own right, like from Finland, Australia, because it's so big and so vast? Is where did you, where do you even start? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, it was great to have him for Christmas. It was his first ever Christmas outside of Finland. So as you can imagine, it's very different because obviously normally Christmas in Finland is very white. Christmas is in, in Australia is very not white. <laughs> it's very sunny and hot. Um, but, yeah, it wasn't his first time in Australia and we've been fortunate or I've been fortunate to show him some pretty cool places already. Like I've taken him obviously all around Adelaide and the surrounding areas I've taken him over to Tassie, um, yeah, and then obviously he's done Melbourne and that. But this year was quite nice because we had six weeks in the Southern Hemisphere. So we started in Melbourne. We went out to Yarra Valley because he loves wine. So we did like Yarra Valley, drove down the Great Ocean Road. You know, it's it's something quite nice. And then same thing with our bikes. And then we're staying in the hills in Adelaide and same thing. It's A lot of it revolved around cycling and vineyards. So it's like we did Bros, we did McLaren Vale, Adelaide Hills, the good restaurants and then, yeah, for Christmas he was like, I want surf and turf. So <laughs> we got an excessively big piece of steak huh? and we got prawns or shrimp for the barbie and he's wearing thongs and he wasn't wearing a, a singlet that day but it was just a T-shirt. But, you know, for him it was he embraced the Aussie Christmas and it was just, yeah, with my family and so that was quite nice. And then this 26 we had with like more the extended family so we got the whole you know, <laughs> big family experience. and But, yeah, we enjoyed it. And for us, it's just each time we go back, it's like, okay, let's see more places. Like I've taken him to Kangaroo Island as well. Mm. And for me it's nice too because it's been so long since I've properly done Australia, like because normally when I go back, it's just to Adelaide. But now it's like, okay, where can we go and explore? Like some, you know, keep seeing – because Australia is, as you say, so big, but it's such a beautiful country and so diverse. Yeah, it must be great to come home properly for such an extended period of time and for you both to spend most of your time in one time zone or one and a half time zones, depending if you're between Adelaide and here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What was uh, – I can't not talk about it. I know I hear, this question was asked to death of Valtteri, but uh, hopefully we're not – Asked too much about this. This Aussie starter pack thing that blew up the internet, where most Australians involved in Formula One were like, "This is the best thing I've ever seen," including me. Um, was this your idea? Was it a combined idea? Did someone say this will be the great thing? Because clearly Daniel Ricciardo left. Everyone went, "Who's Oscar Piastri?" And Valtteri went, "Hello, I am Australian now." And everyone went, "Okay, great, you're our favourite driver." Yeah. Yeah, it was funny how that how viral that video went. So I guess we can rewind a little of how it first started. I'd say it was definitely more influenced by Valtteri. I just embraced and I also am always like the ideas person too, so we like bounce ideas. But So it started with, okay, two years ago I think it was he wanted to do Movember. I was like, oh, Movember, great. <laughs> so then he did the moustache and I was like, for me I don't care like what, what he looks like or what he wants to do. I'm just like whatever. But I was like. <laughs> If you're going to do November, you have to at least raise the money. So I was big. I'm like, at least do it for a cause. So did it then. And then this same thing, he wanted to do November again. So I'm like, all right. So I was just like, as long as you raise the money, then sure, at least it's for a good cause if you're going to look funny. And um, so we did that. And then it was at a time where we were traveling so much too, just hadn't got around to going to the hairdresser. So the hair was just getting longer and longer and people being like, oh, you're going to get a mullet soon or this or that. And he kept saying, yeah. I'm going to get a mullet, like, oh, God, whatever. And then, of course, the idea came, we're going to Australia, start December. That can be, even though Movember's finished, that can be the last Movember. So that was always a plan. Like, we landed in Melbourne, found, well, like, all right, if we've got to do it, we need to do some fun content. So we got somebody to film it and, yeah, it was like literally day one when I got the haircut. We'd pre-planned a couple of things, like, obviously, naturally, with his initials being VB, VB beer goes in line even though, you know, he's got zero affiliation with them. It's just it's just a nice overlap. So, like, bought a bunch of merch. Like, I was like, you need to get the wife beat, the singlet <laughs> and, you know, the thongs and, like, look full Aussie bogan. So, yeah, and that's just kind of how it started and here we are. We still have a mullet <laughs> and a mo. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you sound super stoked about it. Uh, <laughs> he, he was just 
everywhere for this Grand Prix. Uh, you could ask Oscar who, quite honestly. And yes, Daniel was back for his first Grand Prix as the third driver at Red Bull, but hardly anyone took notice because Valtteri's at all of these events. From from your point of view, in, in watching from the outside, from a, and being so close to a driver. How stressful is that or how exhausting is that? Because I imagine you get over asking, being asked the question, do you like VB and do you like your mother? You can do it maybe once or twice and then you go, all right, <laughs> refer to previous statements. Yeah. Yeah. I think you definitely embrace the Aussie culture. You could see like the Aussies, you know, loved it. Um, in terms of all the events, I'd say I was partly to blame for half of them because, you know, we <laughs> saw this great opportunity to do a lot of fun stuff. And we also have our gin, Oath Gin, which is produced in Finland. Mm. And we haven't quite got it in Australia yet, but then we had this great idea to do the collaboration. So we had like a special edition gin that we did for Melbourne. So then naturally did events for that. I was like, oh, can you just pop in, do this? And then we had like a hospitality as well at the track. And so, yeah, we definitely probably bit off a little bit more than we could chew. And obviously poor Valtteri had to put on the face to attend everything obviously I was there in the background like I wasn't meant to be there because there was a race that weekend but then the team didn't put me in so I flew all right I was like I'm going to Australia so I did a very short four-day trip but it, it was fun though like you know just seeing the reception for and seeing everybody really enjoying kind of the fun things we did even with like the merchandise like that was something mm. yeah and I worked with Valtteri on that and then we did something a little more touching with like the helmet you know doing the in Aboriginal design helmet mm, and raising so money good. for that as well. So there was a lot going on and a lot of working pieces. And but for sure, like that was very unique. Like we would never normally do that much. And you could see he was quite exhausted by the end because he had also been in Adelaide the weekend before for the motorsport festival and working on some other things. But you know, some occasions it's like okay, you just need to, yeah. If we do it again, we won't do quite that much. But it was like such a great opportunity. So many kind of fun projects and things we're passionate about to help, you know, just have, we're all about just having fun and creating, you know, fun ideas. I love it. And I think it really shows and whether or not it's because he's no longer with Mercedes and, and able to do that or, or whatever it is. But what I think is the real point of difference from my point of view, I, I very rarely used to see Formula One merchandise around town uh, here in Melbourne or Sydney or anywhere. And I was at the Avalon air show and I saw three 77 Alfa Romeo hats on different people walking around. Oh, yeah. I'm like, no other Formula One merchandise, just Valtteri's. I was like, this is fantastic. Uh, it's, I think it's, yeah. and just that kind of random event, which has nothing to do with Formula One, um, seeing merchandise there is is very, very cool indeed. Um, before we wrap this up, and thank you again so much for your time, I do want to talk about your gin because it is a big departure away from cycling uh, and getting involved in the liquor business is interesting. I also have a gin company here in Melbourne, so I can understand how difficult it is. But what was it about gin and why specifically the name Oath? Yeah, so gin, it's basically, it's a passion project between Valtteri and I. It was when we first met, it was always kind of the common drink that we would order, like, yeah go, let's have a gin tonic. And then it started with that. And then, you know, obviously traveling, we both had different schedules. We'd each bring, you know, wherever we were, buy the local gin and bring it back and say, hey, here you go, or add to the collection. And, you know, we're building quite a collection. And then, you know, just one day having gin and tonic, we're like, huh, could be fun maybe to do our own gin. You know, kind of just start as a fun idea and not really progressing with it. And then we were with some friends of ours who have some experience in startups in the alcohol business and they were like, yeah, we could help. So then, you know, it's just over, I think it was a lunch. We're like, all right, let's do this. So the four of us put it together and say, all right, we're doing it. And then, yeah, okay, then where do you start? Do you get a distillery? Do you contract brew? You know, all these things. And obviously, fortunately for us, I think the initial one, we're like, okay, we want to do it with an existing distillery just mm. because the cost of the startups, it makes more sense just to kind of trial it. And, yeah, we had this opportunity with one in Finland um, to do something with them and, yeah, naturally it seemed like a good fit because obviously Finland connection with Valtteri and the water in Finland, the quality is super, super high quality and, you know, obviously with alcohol it's such an important element. Um, so, yeah, we started with that and then, yeah, it just kind of grew like naturally, of course, you know, how do we do it, the marketing, blah, blah, blah. And we also want it to connect both Australia and Finland. Mm. So then this is where the whole story, like with the apples and the oats, like 
Apple was inspired by the Adelaide Hills and then oats from Bolter's family farm. And, yeah, we just wanted to create something that was good enough to be a sipping gin but also perfect for a gin tonic. And, yeah, we had a very good distiller who created this amazing recipe and, yeah, very happy with how it turned out. And then the name Oath, it, we wanted like a really strong and powerful word. Um, first we talked about Sisu, which if anybody knows Sisu, it's like similar to Aussie grit. It's like a word to explain just persistence, perseverance, like strong, you know, something that you just have inside of you. Um, but take, yeah, that was very heavily trademarked and used already. So then a branding agency kind of gave us a few suggestions and Oath was one of them. And we're like, we like that because firstly it's got the word oat in it and that's part of the recipe, but also oath, it's such a strong word. Like, you know, you make a promise, it's, you can be used in so many different ways, obviously for Australia, like bloody oath, like an oath, <laughs> like, you know, you name it, you can have fun with it, but it's also a strong and powerful word. Like you take an oath and this is my oath. Like, so yeah, we thought we like it, you know, it's bold, it's strong, it looks good and and that's how we got the name. Well, Tiffany, you've got to, as I mentioned before, out of the Olympics, you've got all of this momentum. What can we as hopefully some new fans for you and for cycling expect for the rest of 2023 and beyond? Yeah, so obviously 2023, the season's already started, um, being a busy classics campaign. So now i got some gravel racing coming up. Um, so, yeah, looking to on gravel, it's more I'm going for the results for myself, so looking to try to get some wins and podiums there. On the road, um, the big goal is the Glasgow World Championships. So that is in August. Um, so, yeah, try and make the team there. And then we also have the Gravel World Championships, which I also will target a podium. So those are the general goals. And, yeah, just trying to keep improving as, a, as an athlete. But obviously next year is a 24 Paris Olympic Games. Uh, so that's the bit of the short long-term goal right now, um, yeah, to see if I can get one more Olympic selection and, try to go even stronger if I get into the Australian team. And then from there, let's see, you know, haven't really made a plan beyond there. It's like, okay, I have a contract to the end of 24 and then, yeah, see if I stay in the sport of cycling or go more into gravel or, yeah, one of many other ideas. Like obviously we have our gym, we've got other ideas for products. Um, I'm always playing with design. So I don't know. We'll see. But, yeah, lots of things to keep me busy. Absolutely brilliant. Well, Tiffany Cromwell, thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you. No worries, Anne. Thanks for having me. Well, a massive thank you to Tiffany Cromwell and her team for arranging that chat. And we feel incredibly lucky to have spoken to her on this podcast. If you enjoyed that episode, please consider subscribing and leaving us a rating or review. Well, that's it for this episode of Lakeside Drive. We'll see you in the podcast feed very soon. Can we just pause for one sec? Yeah, sure. Just about two things. I just talk yeah, of course. Her. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Sorry, mate. Gotta go to Baku. So yeah, good luck, man. <laughs> Thanks. Sports Social Podcast Network.